I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very excited to have with us this morning Tim Jessup from the Komodo Survival Program and Deakin University. Welcome, Tim. Oh, thanks very much, guys, for having me. We're at the Large Baronet Conference here in Alice Springs, and yesterday you did an amazing talk talking about the 19 years of research you guys have been doing on Komodo dragons. Yeah, that's right. We, we started a long time ago, um, and it's just been a kind of ongoing journey to really... I guess unravel the mystery of these pretty iconic animals that live out in a very small area of eastern Indonesia. And it wasn't always the case, was it? They're confined to that area, but is it true they used to be here in Australia? Yeah, we, we certainly think so, or at least the paleontologists certainly think so, but we'll, we'll never definitively know. But if you look at fossil remains that are present within Australia, there's certainly a lot of evidence that there were really big ranids running around Australia. We know that for a number of different reasons um, and there are certainly fossils that are very very similar to Komodo dragons that are present within Indonesia today and we think that perhaps when we look at the genetic basis that yeah there's a really strong Australian linkage because the closest sort of sister species to Komodos is the Australian lace monitor which is anyone that lives on the east coast would have seen raiding their picnic lunches in national parks and so those guys uh, sort of split from one another about 15 million years ago and sometime we think by looking at the fossil deposits on Flores which is in eastern Indonesia where Komodo dragons live now they start to turn up in the fossil deposits around about 900,000 years ago. The island of Flores that's also famous because they found the uh, the hobbits, the three foot high humans, the last homo uh, besides us to to live on Earth. Do you think they were prey to the Komodo dragons? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, if you certainly do a quick kind of uh, Google search and you look up sort of paleo art images of Flores, there's lots of pictures, you know, depicting Komodos interacting with, with uh, you know, Homo floresiensis or the, the hobbit, and it seems to go both ways, um, with hobbits hunting Komodos or vice versa. Um, it's very likely, uh, as it happens now in sort of contemporary sort of Flores communities, that, you know, they interact, people and Komodo dragons interact. So there's no reason not to think that that wouldn't have been the case 50,000, 100,000 years ago when they were both coexisting in the same place. So in the last 10,000 years, humans have introduced things like pigs and deer to the island, and that's part of their, part of their food. But previous to, like back in the Pleistocene, they were eating like elephants? Yeah, that, that's true. So, I mean, Flores and like many sort of places around the world, you know, prior to that sort of, you know, megafauna extinction, there were lots of biggest species. When we think about Australia, we think about diprotodons, for example, giant kangaroos, you know, even big vernid species like Megalania. And it was the same pretty much the world over. And on Flores, in that case, there were things like giant terrestrial tortoises, there were giant although it's two species of stegodont or, or elephant-like sort of creatures. There was a dwarf species, but also a, a larger species. And, you know, we, we don't know for sure, but they turn up again in the same sort of fossil deposits at the same age, overlapping with Komodos. And they may have, in some cases, at least been prey for Komodos, whether it was live prey or, or dead prey. But the thing about Komodos is that their diet is pretty plastic. And so even if those really large species aren't present, they're still generally lots of other food sources that they can eat. And the other thing about Flores, even today, there's lots of endemic sort of rat species that have persisted through time that were very, very large as well, like two or three kilos. So there's always been enough food around, otherwise they would have not been here today. So they've solved that problem as it's sort of come about, I guess, by diversifying their diet. So if we once had them in Australia... Is there an argument to reintroduce them, please? <laughs> oh. To help feral cats and rabbit populations. Yeah, look, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of those scenarios that you can run. I mean, Australia's pretty lucky as it is now. We've got lots of our own varanids and, you know, those sort of ecosystems have been around, you know, from a, even from an evolutionary sense for a very long time without the presence of... Uh, very large varanids running around and of course we had even larger species than, than Komodos running around so you've got to be careful if you sort of invoke <laughs> one one rule for one then maybe you have to think about all these other things to sort of recreate that type of sort of Pleistocene community um, good luck to you yeah <laughs> I'm going to try yeah <laughs> So how many populations of Komodo dragons are left on Earth today? Yeah, so there, there are more kind of populations than the islands that they live on. And so if you really think about the islands that they live on, then there's really only five 
islands that they now now live on. And four of those are within Komodo National Park. And the fifth island is that major island, Flores, which sits right to the east of Komodo National Park. But Flores is sufficiently large enough that you've got enough sort of land area to have discrete population separated on that island. So on Flores, there's a north population and a west coast population. So when you look at the total number of populations across those islands, it adds up to about eight with really seven long-running populations and, re- uh, and the eighth population is really a recently established population. It's interesting you said most of the ones here in captivity in Australia or maybe even around the world are the ones from the northern part of Flores, the ones with the yellow yellow face. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not sure how many people know. I mean, most people that ever see a Komodo dragon, or you either see it at the zoo or you go out for your two-hour sort of boat ride out to Komodo National Park and depending on which place you've been to, if you'd see quite different Komodo dragons. So the Komodo dragons that you tend to see in the zoos, you're absolutely right, they're kind of like this golden dragon, they're much more yellow, they generally don't get as large, their head shape is a little bit different, their eyes are a bit more, I think, kind of bubble-eyed. So they look kind of distinctly, or if you know Komodo dragons quite well, they look quite, quite different to the Komodo dragons that live out in the west in Komodo National Park that tend to be much bigger, much drabber in colour, more brown, more chocolate, especially as adults. But in saying that, when they're all babies, they're all incredibly brightly coloured with all these stripes and dots and spots all over their bodies. And that's probably pretty important as a form of sort of camouflage when they live up in the trees when they're babies. So is there any differences between the the locations of where they are, like with the animals? Yes, so if you're sort of beyond colour, yeah. So Komodo dragons, like most animals, will respond to local environmental conditions. So there is, for example, quite a lot of differences in the amount of prey among the different populations and some of that's from sort of recent sort of interactions with humans and modification of habitat some of it's probably you know ancient because it just really reflects that komodos can live on really small islands so some of the islands are only 10 square kilometers whilst the really big islands say for example within komodo national park are about 350 square kilometers and simply by those changes in island size and you get massive differences in the prey base abundance and so how komodos respond to that is simply shrinking so like many reptiles that live in island systems if there's abundance of food or a shortage of food then their body size will respond to it accordingly and so within komodo national park you can be on one island on the big islands of komodo and richer and you see the giant Komodos that everyone sort of takes takes for, for granted, the three-metre monsters that get up to about 80 kilograms when they're really healthy in the wild. But if you go onto these small islands, then where there's much less food, then they can be much smaller. They might only get up to about 30 kilograms. And, you know, that shrinkage in body size is probably for a couple of different reasons. It could be through genetic reasons because they've been separated populations for a long time, but they're also, like many reptiles, very plastic in body size. So they really track their environmental food resources very very well by sort of expanding and shrinking as they need to do they move between islands at all what you see in some documentaries years ago that they were saying they did but yeah look i mean our sense really from from the mark recapture work which is you know is where you really go out and tag lots of individuals you put a little chip in them and it's a really good way of letting you sort of follow animals through time and space and because we've invested a considerable amount of time in lots of different populations. So we had, within Komodo National Park, for example, 10 marked populations of approximately 1,500 individuals marked. And we think the total population within that island is about only about 3,000 individuals. So we felt very confident if we saw animals move, then there was a very good probability we'd see some of these marked individuals move. And we never, ever saw any of those marked individuals move among islands and even more surprisingly even within the valleys so you've got to imagine these islands are quite rugged it's like they've got a big spine through the middle through high hill ranges and then coming off that central hill range are all these valleys so it's kind of like these neighborhoods these the valley floors represent the neighborhoods where all these dragons tend to hang out in really good vegetation or very good forest uh, it's not very far to move from one valley to the next. It might be a simple kind of kilometre walk over the hill. But in the sort of 13 years that we've been following, the, well, I think we've had maybe three or four movements, even against these very short distance movements between valleys. So that sort of picture between going between islands or even moving long distances within islands seems to be pretty rare. And there's probably a really good basis for that because it's better the devil you know, I think, from a Komodo Dragon's perspective. If you go to 
another island, you're really at a disadvantage because A, you may have no knowledge about what the prey base is like there. So it may be a lot worse than where you've left from. So, you know, you're right at a disadvantage straight away. Komodos, obviously, you know, they can fight and they can be quite dangerous in terms of causing damage or, or even injury to one another. So if you walk, what I like to think about called the social geography, if you walk from an area where you kind of can smell or you're individual some of those will be more related to you some of them you won't know but you know who they are because you can smell them and then suddenly you sort of move over you're very naive and a disadvantage again because you may just annoy someone whose territory you're sort of walking into as well so you've got to be really careful about the reasons why you want to move and so for komodos it seems like it's really really rare they do do it but it's rare and i mean the best example of that for us was we went out to this tiny little inhabited island it wasn't on one of the main populations it was this kind of Dirt Bowl Island that sits at the Northern National Park. And this dragon basically rocked up on this island, swam up onto this island, probably carried by pretty forceful currents that exist out there. And if that was a regular thing, the people wouldn't have thought much of it. But they were really, A, concerned, because suddenly there's this three-metre-long lizard walking around the (laughs) village. And in their kind of oral history, you know, which probably presumably goes back, you know, generations of people, they could recount something like this. So there's sort of that scientific evidence, but it's also that cultural evidence as well. But it must happen, of course. From the genetic side, and this is probably going into too much detail, but it looks like that Komodo Island has probably been separated, even though it's only 5 to 10 kilometres away from some of these other island populations for at least 70,000 years. So pretty isolated in some places. Okay, so it's a bit about the proximity I mean, if you're really, really close between two islands, then you probably get more movement, but you don't actually need to go very far with having a sufficient enough oceanic barrier between those islands until it gets pretty impenetrable to stop the likelihood that animals can successfully move among those big populations. And I find that really weird because when you're out there, I mean, the water's warm. It's not like a barrier in terms of temperature. You can imagine if it was too cold, then that might inhibit animals going into it. You can see all the other islands. So from a navigational perspective, from an animal's perspective, it's not like they have to use dead reckoning or magnetic compass. So even if they don't know about the destination or what's on it, they can certainly see it. So there's a land a land sort of navigational beacon there to, to sort of guide them where to go. But, but of course, that tells you nothing about what it's like on that island if you've never been there before and you don't know anything about the risk of sort of colonising a new landscape. So they like to stay at home. It's in their best interest. Yeah, homebodies, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Which means they must get on. Yeah, they don't really live in groups. But, uh, I mean, what they're really good at doing is kind of living at very high densities, you know, compared to many other predators. And, and the reason that they do that, I mean, A, they're really solitary. So they don't really kind of collaborate on anything together unless it's sort of really fundamental things like mating and stuff like that. So they're pretty asocial. They're really kind of loners. The other thing that they're really good at doing in their environment is really separating out the resources based on their body size. So, which is really cool because it's a you know a really efficient way of you know taking every type of resource or thing that they need to survive based on their body size. So, when you look at Komodo dragons, you can go out there. You don't sort of ever see a discrete territory. It's not like they block other individuals from coming into a territory. So you see all this overlap. And that's simply allowed because, you know, as I'm saying, that if you're a small animal, then you're going to be eating very different food. You may even live in slightly different parts of that habitat within the general habitat of that area. So it really allows them to be really, really efficient because, A, they're pretty asocial, and, B, their body size really permits all this separation of kind of their ecology to let them, yeah, build these neighbourhoods. But it'd be a pretty horrible neighbourhood for a human to live in in the sense you would never talk to your neighbours. So, you know, you the pros and cons of being a Komodo dragon. You were saying that they don't regulate their prey. I mean, being on an island, you think, like, can they eat themselves out of house and home? But mm. the prey regulates themselves, is that correct? Yeah, so, I mean, we've been really, really interested about, you know, and, you know, there is, like, everyone that works on Apex Predators desperately hopes that, they're, you know, like the, 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 the big cheese and in the kind of the trophic structure of of the ecosystem. But there are situations where you don't want very strong interactions um, among species. In fact, if you look at 
one of the key recipes for persistence, at least from an ecosystem perspective or in, among communities of animals. You really want animals to be weakly interacting because as soon as you start to create these very strong interactions, and by interactions I'm talking about things like parasitism, predation, competition, those things, if they're too strong, obviously, you know, someone suffers or some population suffers, they're disadvantaged. So the classic thing between predators and prey is if predators, you know, get an advantage to the point where they're really able to really efficiently exploit their prey, then they can drive those prey to extinction. Now, we can see that happen on islands in the past, but we think that doesn't happen with Komodo dragons simply because we've never measured direct impacts of Komodo dragon predation on prey. So what's regulating the prey? And that's sort of coming back to the question you asked initially. Well, the other major driving force on on populations is really really this intraspecific competition. So if you're not worried about predation in terms of regulation of population, you should be really worried about how many individuals that are exactly like you exploiting the same resource that are out there because that's going to be a really big constraint on how many individuals in the population can exist. So that's really that really important factor of density causing carrying capacity. And so it looks like the prey are really sensitive to carrying capacity. But it's not that simple either, and I can talk to you about this for for hours, about other processes that are present in that landscape that probably weaken the ability of Komodo dragons to not have this really strong negative regulation impact on on their prey species. But what is important about that is that really what that allows Komodo dragons and their prey to do is have much weaker sort of fluctuations in their population size. And when you reduce that population, it means you're more stable against the other processes that are out there that can also cause populations to go up and down. And the main thing when you're working on these islands, you don't have super large populations. So if they're reasonably small, then they're always going to be more sensitive to extinction just by chance, for example, through inbreeding or whatever the classic causes of extinction might be. So if you can really weaken those population fluctuations and you help to kind of reduce the risks from these other processes that might cause you to go extinct anyway. So now, as I'm saying to you, there are a number of reasons why that might happen and a lot of it's probably just chance. So, But whatever it is, it's probably been key to the success of Komodo dragons for as long as they've lived on those islands, at least with those current prey species. Are they still successful on all the islands? Uh, it depends. So, you know, islands are, you know, there have always been these beautiful evolutionary laboratories of, of, of variation and, you know, and that's why people love working out on islands. But the trouble with islands is that, you know, often they're not replicated units of the same thing. So you go to one island and it's completely different. Now, obviously, with humans in the picture, in, particularly in eastern Indonesia or in Indonesia in general, where there are lots of human impacts on the environment, then where Komodo dragons probably most coexist with humans and there tends to be more, more issues where you're getting loss of habitat, for example, or degradation of habitat. And you may get alteration of the protected areas in which they did, but it's very, very variable. So generally what we think about Flores, which is this really big island, is that it probably has a lot more issues that involve human interactions affecting Komodo dragons. Within Komodo National Park, the big populations look relatively stable. The small populations tend to balance around a very much more, which is really consistent with small population dynamics. You know, And when I'm talking about these small populations, I'm talking about populations that might be only as big as 100 individuals that have persisted on these islands for maybe 10,000 years without contact in some cases. So really historically very small populations and you would expect those to just bounce up and down through time. Have you noticed much change in the attitude of the people native to the island? Um, so uh, for people that, that don't know, so again, it depends really where you live because there's quite different sort of communities of people or histories of people. So... In the Western Komodo National Park, for example, you've got more maritime or seafaring people. And so what that really means is that they're, they're boat-based people and they exploit a lot of the resources from the sea. And, you know, and from a Komodo dragon's perspective, that's pretty good because what that means is these people aren't drawing resources out of the forests in terms of clearing it for agriculture, building market gardens or subsistence farming for what except. So it takes a lot of pressure off the land. So that's pretty good in that way. Those people have you would generally say, a very low impact on Komodo dragons. Now, in Flores, it's a very different story. Now, that place has been, you know, 
with humans has been under agricultural development for millennia. You know, very, very long history of humans using agricultural practices. And of course, as soon as you start to have that kind of you know, stationary land use, then you're going to get problems with habitat conversion, habitat loss. And of course, you know, with the advent of sort of modern medicine and changes in practices and the population growth rates on the reds have also been increasing over the last few decades as well. So, you know, that's going to exacerbate, that's going to put more pressure on the, on the environment. And that means those reserves in which Komodo dragons live on Flores will also increasingly come under more pressure because they simply won't have that very large buffer zone around them, which they might do at the moment. So very different horses for courses, depending on where you are in terms of your dealings with people. And that's really going back to what those people do do for their livelihoods, whether they're seafarers or whether they're basically farming people. Are you positive about the future of the Komodo dragons in the wild? Look, I think... Everyone who, who's interested in, in any type of animal, you've kind of got mixed emotions. And, and I think we all know that, you know, with global change and climate change, and I think it's going to make it very tenuous for, for most species, you know, not within the next sort of century or two. I mean, it's, it's really hard to predict. There will be winners and losers. Uh, I mean, there are general ru- rules within animals for who those losers will be. Anything that's at the top of the food chain, anything that's a really large body animal, um, anything that has reasonably large space requirements will probably do worse than, than smaller animals. Anything with a long generation time, you know, doesn't have the same evolutionary potential as something that's got a short generation time. And island species being, you know, historically... Generally, small populations relative to continental species probably mean that they're far more susceptible. So that's a very caged kind of response. But, I mean, I, I, I don't think, you know, based on sort of current conditions and, and going forward, unless there's really demonstrable changes in terms of securing habitat, that, you know, Komodo dragons will have the brightest future. But in saying that, there will probably be a reduction or loss in the distribution of the species in some areas you should still see the matter persist so we think if you sort of go forward 50 to 100 years where you're taking climate change you're taking sea level rise then the populations will reduce back to probably those key islands in Komodo National Park which are the best secured sort of habitats within their distribution at the moment. It was interesting how you said talking about climate change and uh, warming buying back higher land for the animals. Yeah, look, I mean, that's a pipe dream and, you know, and that seems like a really easy solution. But, but you know, the, to do that is actually really challenging because, A, it invokes, you know, buying tracts of land that are already have people, for example, using that land. So there's really not a lot of untouched habitat left. But if you could find that habitat, and we kind of know where that is, then we would need to, A, find a lot of money to try and tie that land up. But also it'd have to be backed up with a lot of kind of legislation through you know multi-scale local provincial and even in national sort of frameworks to, to protect that land indefinitely into the future but they would as you say need to be set higher to allow changes in vegetation to mitigate the effects of warming climates but also if you get inundation of low-lying habitats due to sea level rise that there is actually some land that those animals can move up to 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 occupy are the, are the governments over there helping you at all? Do they get involved? Yeah, look, I mean, our role is really to assist government. So the government, of course, has had a very long history of, of you know, interest in, in protecting Komodo dragons and really they've been a flagship species and you would argue that against many of the iconic Indonesian species, orangutans and tigers, that they've had a pretty good deal in terms of being recognised as a conservation flagship species. So... The Indonesian government is generally quite proactive within within their means to try and look after these these animals. And, you know, a very good example of that is that Kamau National Park was made a World Heritage Area. It was a, also gazetted as, as a national park in 1980, for example. So it had, prior to that, it was a protected area. So it has a very long history going back to more informal ways of protecting those islands and those populations of Komodo dragons that date back to arguably the late 1800s. So there has been, for a very long time, whether it's through formal Indonesian government or through even colonial governments in collaboration with you know the regional kind of rulers of, of that part of Indonesia to, to try and protect those, those landscapes. So fairly proactive. And like all countries, could you ask, can governments do more? Well, of course they can, but at least they've been trying pretty hard for a pretty long time to 
do a good job of securing those landscapes to the best of their ability, I feel. Mm. Yeah, which which is obviously bringing them money in through tourism and, and stuff, so... Most national parks around the world, you know, they you know, they have multiple values. One is about protecting species, but you know, they're also they're increasingly used as you know draw cards for creating you know economic benefits to local people and, and even broader. So yes, you know, Komodos do provide these ancillary benefits to to local communities. Been involved in that ecotourism market, and it's been a real, I guess, a windfall. Um, you know, for, for those communities that live most close to those protected areas. It was interesting how you said they um, have three different nesting sites that they, they can choose. Most of them use abandoned megapode nests. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, look, I mean, most veranids, you know, they, you know, particularly the biggest species, have these really long incubation periods. You know, they, they sort of vary from six to nine months. And Komodos, when they lay their eggs, it takes them nine months to develop. So they have these really long developmental periods. And so I presume within that type of environment, what they're really looking for is really pretty good kind of places to deposit their eggs. And if you think about um, a megapode mound, what is it? It's pretty much this big kind of conical sort of sand pile of leaves and dirt. And these get used for, you know, many, many years by, by megapode birds, by the same kind of pair of megapodes that are, you know, responsible for looking after these nests and they put a lot of effort into it. But at some point, whether the bird dies or goes through a divorce with its partner or something, they, they yeah. abandon the, the, these nests and these nests get left behind and they compact and they consolidate. But they feel, you know, they're basically these big, hard sort of mounds of, of, of earth. And I think, you know, dragons go, woohoo, you know, we'll just look at that, look at that. That's a perfect kind of place to dig a hole into and drop my eggs, you know, one and a half metres under the ground and... When I fill that in, you know, the environment is going to be, A, have pretty good humidity. You know, you don't want your eggs to dry out. And the deeper you go in the soil, the more water moisture you're going to get. And B, we really don't want temperature fluctuations influencing the, the development of the embryos because temperature will speed up or slow down depending on if it's warmer or cooler. And even those sort of daily variations will matter. Um, so they're kind of like this pre-built, you know, nest chamber that Komodos have sort of said that great we're going to take take advantage of this and lay our eggs into that and nine months later you'll see this little rat hole that's come up through the soil and that's the baby komodo dragons that have dug their way out of their kind of egg chamber and crawl up to the top and as soon as they pop out of the top they don't hang around on the ground they go whoa and they look around and they pretty much run to the closest sort of reasonably tall tree and, and run up there and start life you pretty much don't ever see them again for about two years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, again, it's all about, you know, maximising your resource use. So if you're a baby Komodo dragon, you're pretty small, your mouth's not that big, so you can only fit, you know, you know what you can fit in your gob, and that turns out to be things like insects and small geckos and small skinks, and a lot of those things are living pretty close to trees, so it's kind of like the best place to be. That also means that if you're not on the ground, then you're not going to be basically, uh, you know, a little finger snack for a bigger Komodo dragon as well so a couple of different reasons why they live in the trees you know avoiding predation but also that it suits them down on the ground in terms of finding the right food that fits in their mouths so they do predate on each other like Komodos yeah look they're, they're generalist feeders so it's not like they wake up in the morning and go "Ooh, I feel like Komodo for lunch today <laughs> I mean it's not that kind of rational so cannibalism with, with, with generalist predators is, is not unusual and Yep, if you're unlucky enough to, to run in front of a hungry Komodo, I'm sure that, that, that a bigger Komodo will ha have a go. How much does it, you know, impact their diet? Yeah, it, it's it's not common, but it's not rare. So, you know, if you sort of had to rank down in terms of the proportion of food items that were important, then eating another Komodo would, would rank pretty low. But in the same vein, it's, it's not uncommon. So if you look through the poo of Komodos, you might see shed skin or toenails of, of other Komodos. But that's maybe, you know, two or three in a hundred kind of meals for a larger Komodo. So, yep, it happens. It's not super common. But again, I don't try to get caught up in thinking about the semantics of cannibalism in the way that we do as humans. I mean, it's a, just a, a response to seeing food on legs moving, eat it. It's got the same amount of energy and nutrients as something else. Are the humans there in a lot of danger as well with them? Or 
I wouldn't say a lot of danger. There obviously is a risk. It's, you know, like it's not like, you know, living with crocodiles in, in Africa, for example, or having a rogue lion that, you know, goes on a rampage and kills 30 villages or something like that. That Those things don't happen. I mean, you don't lose hundreds of people. There is a risk of attack wherever humans and Komodos sort of cohabit. Um, if you look over the last decade, I mean, there's thousands of people that live on those islands and there's thousands of dragons um, you know, there may have been about you know 20 attacks. Okay, there have been a couple of mortalities, but it's pretty low risk, mind you. You know, you still need to be careful when you're out there. You wouldn't, and I think those villagers are pretty aware of that. They don't do stupid things. They wouldn't, you know, go and sleep on the ground in in the forest in the middle of the day, for example. That you know, I wouldn't do that either. No one does that, and so. <laughs> You know, they need to be a little bit careful with their livestock. You know, that's more risk of being a goat than a human of being attacked by a Komodo. So, you know, there's probably more livestock loss to, to Komodos in, in those areas. That can cause a bit of consternation with people, depending on where you are. But generally within the islands, you know, they kind of corral their goats and they're pretty accepting and tolerant that that's part and parcel of, you know, coexisting in the habitat of living with Komodo dragons, it's a different story on Flores. You know, people do get pretty peeved off. You know, a goat is not a, a trivial amount of, of money to lose. So if you lose, I don't know, to put in a month's worth of salary or something like that, then you, you're going to be pretty pretty upset by it in some cases. And that may lead to, as we see all over the world, people getting pretty annoyed with, with predators that, you know, kill kill their, their kind of financial investments in, in, in food, for example. And they can be sometimes have, have retribution towards Komodo dragons, but part of our role is to really try and stop that from happening as well. Is there a dominance level within the wild populations? Do males rule, or like humans, do females rule? <laughs> um, I mean, they're, they're pretty pretty asocial, but, um, you know, like, I think, that, you know, size matters, so generally the males are bigger, so... If there's any resource competition, um, you know, my, over, you know, you can imagine a, a dead pig on the ground and there's two big Komodos eating it and they, can, they suddenly eat, one's eating the head, one's eating the rear, and they meet in the middle, then they're going to fight I, I, over that because it becomes a contested resource and that will be determined by who is the biggest and strongest. Um, so, but those things, it's kind of context specific and, you know, there's no one ruler, a benevolent ruler of, of, of the Komodos out there and um, running around uh, trying to usurp his rule all over, okay. all over the place. So they're pretty asocial generally and, and but size matters where, where you get to those kind of conflicts that are very, very specific and very, very localised, then you might get kind of, you know, and Varanids are, are very famous for this very stereotypical kind of wrestling and, and sort of dominance sort of behaviour that, that they go through. It's often not lethal, but it's just more of a really, you know, I would say a bit very, very showy, you know, test of strength. And, you know, there's very stereotypical behaviours where you'll find that they'll wrestle and then whoever sort of goes, ooh, you're a bit stronger than I, will become very, very submissive. And you'll actually see two big Komodos and one big Komodo will crawl on top of the subdominant or the, the weaker big big Komodo and scratch it on, on the back. Really stereotypical, like it's kind of watching choreography. You know, it's really weird. It's not aggressive. It's not using their full strength or, or anything like that. But it's, um, yeah, it's pretty bewildering. So wow. they sort of go through all these. It's so. very impressive when they're stood up. Yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, they, they are really strong and they're very, very powerful. And, you know, it's... You know, I, you know, from an evolution perspective, you go back and you think, well, how does that start? You know, did they, were they got thumb wrestling before that? And then so I guess, okay, I bear this, just stand up and, and wrestle with me or something. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really unusual because it's not that common, you know. And I'd like to think they started thumb wrestling. It probably first. was. <laughs> I reckon it would be. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, so you've spent a lot of time over there. How, how many times have you visited the islands? Uh, look, uh, I, I think it's probably about 50 times that I've, I've been in, into the National Park or on Flores. And, you know, I, I don't spend anywhere as much time as I do now. That's the, the role of the Indonesian guys who head up KSP. Um, I probably go over there for... I've been over there three times this year, for example. Some of that's for field work. Some of that's for, you know, running courses. Some of that is for running meetings to organise sort of planning so we kind of work like a, a normal sort of organization in that sense there's lots of different tasks 
um, you know, which is more fun than the other. It's hard to say which is worse. It's hard to say as well. Um, but in the early days when we got it established, because it was so intensive and so large scale, um, it did take a lot of time. It was like six months a year. So in the first five years or so, I was probably spending three to six months a year there. So in total time, I've probably spent about three years living out in those islands. And the guys that I work with have spent way more than that. They've probably spent... Oh, I'd, I would imagine six or seven years, eight years even, of living out in those islands. So, you know, they're, they're, they're locals and um, that's a huge effort. I mean, that's six months of the year being away from your family, that's six months of the way from having the creature comforts of, you know, a cold orange juice and a, and a comfortable couch. That is, you know, these guys are really, really dedicated, like really dedicated. And, you know, the only reason that you can do stuff for 18 or 19 years the same project is a you know you've got to get enough money obviously but more importantly is having the right people and these guys i mean they'll i imagine they'll they'll die doing this stuff you know that's so important to them and and that's that perseverance is really you know the key to success in many of these types of initiatives because i never get done or finished in a short time frame what are some of the personal rewards that you feel um that you receive doing this work Oh, look, you know, there, there, there are a lot and, and they sort of keep coming in different forms and stuff like that. I mean, personally, I mean, I don't have like this, this I guess this, I don't know how to say it. I'm not drawn to Komodo dragons because they're Komodo dragons. I, I've never had that, but, but I have a very sort of scientific way of thinking about them. I'm, I really love trying to understand about what they do. So I feel very fortunate like that. I, I really love landscapes. You know, I, I'm sort of blown away and, you know, that wonderment of nature stuff. For me, it's really about being landscapes and, and I love those island landscapes. I think that they're just stunningly beautiful. They're so u- unique on a global scale. I mean, there are these rugged mountains with dry savannas and closed forests surrounded by these expanses of coral reef and seagrass meadows and, you, you know, it's like... It's it's fanciful when you look at it. You get out there and then you see these giant lizards on there, and it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, it's just you know, it's that combination of of different things. I think also just having the opportunity to spend a lot of time in different cultures and seeing the way that people sort of view the world and you know what their prior priorities are. And I ideally like working with Indonesian people. I mean, there's something about working with people that have had very rich and, and, you know, dignified cultures for, for, for millennia. I mean, they have a different way about doing stuff in the world and, you know, and I sort of really like some of the, you know, the things, the way that they view the world. I think they're, you know, it's an amazing country. You know, it's 300 million people and they're really creative and, and really, really smart as well and lots of these people. So having opportunity to work with lots of people and, from all different types of backgrounds, whether it's from some guy in the village or whether it's some guy that's gone through, you know, uh, you know, equivalent education to what what you might get in the West, it, it's just been very opening. You know, very different. You know, spiritual beliefs. You know, I'm quite atheistic in my life. These guys are very, very religious. You know, whether it's you know Islam or, or Christian. So sitting there and working with people with very different t- types of faith backgrounds as well has been really, really interesting and. You know, everyone gets on really, really well harmoniously and, of course, learning how to eat rice three times a day every day for for very long times is, you know, it's one of those fascinating things as well. And um, I don't know, it's just one of those things that's, you know, just very very personally enriching. I often just think about it in the same value as as having a child. You know, it's kind of like my my third child. It's just kind of been there so long and sort of growing and developing and it's just, you know, been wonderful. It hasn't been without its challenges or its risks or it's scary or... But that's how I kind of view it. You know, it's just a very lucky thing to have in your life. Beautifully said. Yeah. But have you been there in both seasons? It's obviously just a wet, dry season thing there. Yeah, you know, I've been there. I mean, I certainly don't go in the middle of the wet season. There's no point just because it's pretty miserable and, you know, it's overcast and it's raining quite heavily. So it's hard to do field work from that sense and from a disease kind of perspective. You know, it's a lot more malaria then and stuff like that. So... We generally just start doing our work right at, well, at the tail end of the wet season. So what that means is that you get out there, the rain is starting to, you know, not be so prevalent. It still might rain a little bit every other day, but it's not torrential during, you know, like the classic monsoonal rain. But it's certainly very different the landscape. It's bright green and it's emerald. The trees have all budded. You know, there's lots of leaves everywhere. There's lots of understory growth in the shrubs. So it looks very, very different from the dry season. The dry season when you go out there is, as it says, you know, the forest out there needs to be really adaptable. So, you know, many trees, 
in, in Europe, for example, drop their leaves in winter. It's the same in many trees that you know live in very dry environments. They're deciduous, so they, they drop their leaves. So you sort of walk out there and there's half the, the trees don't have leaves on them. It's very, very barren and brown as the grass is sort of, you know, going into a kind of quiescent state to save energy and not photosynthesise as much. And so it goes from green to brown. So everything goes drab and, and sort of golden yellow, like it turns into this sort of... Like slightly burnt buttery look on the on the hills where all the savannah is dried out, which is a, sort of the dominant landscape. So yeah, visually it looks really really differently. Um, for the animals, it's not so pervasive that they need to sort of go underground and hide, which is something that would certainly happen if you weren't surrounded by ocean. The ocean moderates with humidity a, a fair bit of the otherwise you know loss of rainfall. So animals are still pretty active. Um, they certainly cure their breeding seasons to, to the differences in precipitation. If the people that want to go and see Komodo dragons in the wild, do, what are your thoughts on the tourism? Is it, is it a positive thing for the animals? Look, again, look, I think it's actually been pretty well regulated for a long time. And, I mean, the main thing when you think about tourism, yes, tourism around the world, if it's not properly managed, can have lots of negative impacts on animals. But if you go to Komodo National Park... The general thing is that tourists tourists can't go everywhere. They're really allocated to two two areas on the two major islands, okay? And they're actually called ecotourism areas, and they've been zoned that way for quite a long time. And the total area that those tourists generally pour into, and, and there are a large number of them these days that go there, is only about 2% of the total land area within Komodo National Park. So they've been very good at spatially confining where, where people can go to reduce their impacts. And when you look at, you know, why do people go there? Well, it's really like the type of tourism is quite interesting. I mean, it's probably the same the world over. I, I, I don't know. But a lot of people simply want to go and see a Komodo. And if that means for five minutes or if that means for an hour, then so be it. It's kind of like tick your book, get your photo and go. So people aren't hanging around. There isn't a lot of infrastructure in terms of allowing people to stay there for long periods of time. Uh, but if that was a change, then you would think that that would start to have more problems. I mean, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. There's things that still could be tightened up. The hard thing in Indonesia is always going to be around sanitation, what to do with plastic, for example. Um, if you've got a Great Barrier Reef, clearly all your boats have sullage on them, so, you know, no faeces goes into the water. That's something that could be, be kind of looked at in the future. But to get to that point really requires a lot of infrastructure. And you've got to be really careful as well because at the moment... It's quite egalitarian in terms of the way that the tourism is spread among people. Yes, there are Westerners in there, or yes, there are very wealthy Indonesians that have better quality kind of infrastructure in terms of their boats and stuff. But there are still a lot of local people with local boats that, you know, directly, you know, trickle money down into the communities, whether it's on Flores or whether it's on the island as well. So whatever you do, you've got to be sort of cognizant of trying to manage, yes, the impacts, but also think about how you direct you know, the development of tourism into the future. One thing that you would really not want to see is a lot of major developments within Komodo National Park because, A, there's not a lot of water out on those islands. B, you have to generate all this power somehow through diesel generation, for example. So um, there are things that they could do now. You know, like people are really confined to trails, but, you know, they could build, you know, good trail infrastructure, you know, in the way that you go to many national parks where you work on sort of permanent sort of metal metal boards, for example, that would take any pressure off the land. But generally I think it, it's pretty under control. From a viewing experience, it might feel a bit weird because there are a lot of people, so you never sort of have that sort of oneness alone kind of feeling without looking over your shoulder and seeing a group of people go beside you as well. So just recently we've heard a lot about them um, saying they're going to close the park mm. and things. Is, is that warranted? or? Well, it went through a very long process of actually working out whether it was, and part of that was really about the concerns of tourism. Part of it was really about what was happening with the Komodo dragon populations out in the National Park. And the, I guess the frustrating thing about that, it was really founded on the opinions of a single individual who happened to be very powerful, and in this case was... The provincial governor of Nusa Tenggara Timor, which is kind of the, the island of Flores, and Komodo National Park is sort of administered as kind of like a, a premier or a governor in, in, in the Australian Australian system or American system, for example. Um, and for some reason, he had been his bonnet and he went there and made all these allegations that were really largely baseless. Now, I think, you know, if you try and put yourself in his shoes, then you probably go, why was he sort of talking about that? Well, there's probably a number of reasons. 
you still need to remember that on Flores, for example, if you walk out into some of the villages, not very far from these townships, they don't have electricity. So anything, you know, a lot of Indonesian governments are very, very pro-development. You know, and they're pro-development because they want to see people be alleviated from poverty. And, and you know, there's part of me that agrees with that, but it's just about how you go about that. So we are not sure whether that was his large motivation that was kind of dressed up around these concerns about the thing. But one of the nice things about our work with 19 years of data collection was to really kind of, I guess, show quite conclusively a lot of his allegations were, were incorrect. Now, that's not to say that, you know, some of the things that he mentioned don't happen. You know, poaching happens from time to time, for example, where deer get shot by kind of organised gangs of, of poachers that come in from neighbouring islands and that could have an impact if it was really, really heavy and prolonged. It still seems to be quite sporadic. So we certainly agree with some of those things could be sorted out in terms of security issues that could be improved. And they have been, you know, sort of gone between weak and strong over the years, depending on the resources. But no, at this stage, it looks like Komodo won't be closed for the future. So the Komodo Survival Program is coming up to 20 years. Any, any big, big party planned? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, think, I think we'll probably all go out and have fried rice like we do every day. No, it will be a real milestone, though, and I think, you know, like it's... Yeah, I don't know what to say about it. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of work has been done, a lot of work needs to be done, you know, and so I think the thing is that we still all get on really well and we have a really clear vision on, on how to go forward and, you know... The nice thing I think what that time has really allowed us to do is to get better buy-in. You know, it's really hard to get buy-in. You need to get buy-in across so many levels to make a difference. Right from, you know, the local, you know, villages that are basically killing Komodos if they're eating their goats through to the Minister of Environment who, you know, has the power to decree, you know, new areas of, of, of land or to change, you know, really large-scale kind of, you know, processes that affect the conservation of that species. So I feel like we're getting there and I can only hope that, in the, you know, as we hit the 20-year milestone beyond the fried rice that, you know, we have, you know, a similar trajectory that builds upon what we've done. How do you get funding for everything you've done? Yeah, that's a good question. We've been very lucky and so <laughs> we've sort of... We, we use a number of strategies to get funding like most NGOs do. Um, one of the, the key things is that we've been very fortunate to build up very long kind of funding from consortiums of, of, of zoos. So most zoos, whether it be in Europe, the US or Australia, are affiliated with some national or multinational kind of administration organisation. So the American Zoological Association in, in the US, the European Zoological Association. And so what we've done in collaboration with some key guys that drive those organisations, they basically do a round robin every year and they say to all the zoos that have Komodo dragons, and there are a lot of Komodo dragons in zoos around the world, can you chuck in a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks? And if there's sort of 60 institutions around the world that do that and they routinely do that, then suddenly you build up this war chest that's annually pretty dependable and we use that. And that's been a real strong mainstay and been incredibly supported by those zoological institutes and it's really helped us a lot you know many other zoos will also chip in with one-off donations there are other you know we, we chase down competitive grants as well so there's a whole combination of things but i mean as we get bigger and bigger it gets more and more expensive you know and it's non-trivial these days and it's non-trivial in terms of writing the grants to get all this money and it's non-trivial to write all the funding reports that, that donors want so you know the, you know you're kind of a victim of your own success i think but that's part and parcel of what we have to do every year how, um, going to the zoo side of things, um, obviously they help funding-wise, but how do you feel about them having animals in zoos? It hasn't been completely successful yet, has it? Oh, look, I, I think there's different measures of success on everything. I mean, I think they've had zoos, you know, Komodo dragons in zoos for a very, very long time, going back to the 1930s, for example. And, I mean, being at this meeting, you can see that there are a lot of people concerned about welfare issues in Komodo dragons. And, you know working in zoos it's not easy you don't get to set out these experiments and and do these you know things where you try and you know boost husbandry by 100 percent improvement you've got to kind of go through all these iterative steps you've got one animal to try and do that on and so zoos have that real problem of just really well how do we improve stuff but they do and they're very active and i feel like you know they're, they're getting more and more aware of these issues you know and, and it's horses for courses as well there may be things that happen to those animals that are different 
in the captive environment, and we may need to, to, to accept that that it may not you may not get the same longevity because it goes the other way for lots of different other animals. Obviously, mm. many many animals and zoos live a lot longer than, in zoo environments than they do do in the wild. The other thing is too that you know it's not only about the welfare; it's about how they use those animals. You know, what other values do they derive from those animals? And if there's a big educational component to it as well, then from my perspective, you kind of get that welfare ethics kind of conservation neutrality. It's kind of like carbon offsetting. So zoos are very good at trying to think about how to do that. They're very, very switched on. I mean, they don't have an easy job, but I'm not, you know, about how, how they have to look after animals. They're very strongly regulated. And, and it's hard work. You've got to yeah. just nut this stuff out. So if it takes, takes 20, 30 years to get it right, and these animals are living for 20 years, 30 years, you know, and they're living five or 10 years, slightly shorter than they might do, but many babies are surviving that would never survive in the wild then you've got to weigh up the balances across the board to kind of be a bit more holistic about how zoos are treating it but I generally get the sense that they're pretty proactive about lots of stuff not that I'm privy to <laughs> I don't want it to sound like that but I, I, I get that sense that, that you know they're very vested in trying to improve stuff yeah most of this conference that we're on at the moment is about yeah, that's really right. moving forward with Komodo yeah, dragons yeah. and I think it's great yeah 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 and so I think that happens but it just takes time and, yeah. and they, they don't rest you know I mean you saw some of the talks yesterday how emotional some of the keepers get about looking after yeah. these animals they feel really personally responsible about you know anything that goes wrong so you know if you've got people with that amount of care and interest in the welfare of an animal then it only leads to better things dr tim jessup mate thank you so much for your time oh, it's been a pleasure thank you very much for having me absolutely yeah. awesome yeah and, and if people want to get involved and support the work you do with the komodo survival program what can they do mate oh look the best thing is just go to our webpage. it's called komodo survival program you'll find it pretty easy it's got a very nice front picture of a giant komodo dragon um you know if you want to help out it's hard to help out physically on the field because it's a fair few sort of regulatory processes that are in place but you know if you want to send send funding or something like that please contact one of the contact names from our webpage and everything does really help you know the nice thing about indonesia still is that you know even if it's five bucks you know that's something that can go into a village to to, to you know start to hire someone to you know do a day you know monitoring in the forest to see that you know stuff's not been chopped down illegally which you know reduces impacts on komodo dragon so it's, it's that simple it doesn't have to be you know bleeding you dry or anything like that just, you just need to think about what you can do and anything helps it's a beautiful website. I had, had a look at it last night. And, mate, thanks again. For no your worries. Time. We'll put a link up to that on, the, um, on, the, on our page. Yeah. yeah. And, guys, thank you for listening.